after Jesus was arrested and examined by a handful of Jewish leaders, he was handed over to the Roman authorities and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, examined him to determine his fate. And like any trial, the goal is to discover if there's any truth, any merit to the charges being laid against the individual. So Pilate asks Jesus, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Prior to this encounter in the Gospel of John, Jesus has already made the claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In the Christian worldview of people who are walking in the ways of Jesus, truth is not just a set of propositional ideas, although it includes doctrine, although it includes things we believe. Truth is a person. Jesus says, I am the truth. If you want to know truth, then you need to listen to my voice. But doesn't Pilate's question, what is truth? sound a lot like our own cultural moment. He would be a good postmodern millennial. What is truth? We live in an age, at least a political climate, that many people are describing as post-truth. The truth is contested and questionable. It's hard to tell the difference between a fact and a lie. We live in an age where the truth is contested. It should be questioned. We know that people aren't always telling the truth. What is truth? As we continue in our series today, a series we've been calling Practices, today we're considering the practice of testimony. And often when Christians use this word, what they mean is someone gets up on stage and they share their story of how Jesus entered into their life and transformed them in some capacity. And that is the right way to use the word. But we also have to remember that the word testimony comes from the the court of law. Testimony is about bearing witness to the truth as Jesus did with his whole life and as he did before Pontius Pilate. And in this series, we've been talking about how practices, spiritual disciplines, they have two aims. A healthy practice connects us to Jesus for the sake of the world. And so today I want to consider the practice of testimony, or you could call it the practice of speaking the truth, how speaking the truth connects us to Jesus for the sake of of the world. And here's the idea I want to consider. The practice of testimony is the process of becoming honest with ourselves before God and others. The practice of testimony is the process of becoming honest with ourselves before God and others. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 John. That's where we're going to be hanging out most of this morning. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our gray Bibles home with you. We'd love for you to have that. Everything will be on the screen behind me. First John, we're going to zoom in on verses 5 through 10 in chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want to focus on one thing in particular that John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This morning we sang the 18th century song, Amazing Grace by John Newton. Anyone hear that for the first time this morning? No, most people, whether you come from a religious background or not, you know this song, you know the lyrics, and it's, it's not hard to connect with this song. It has a feeling, doesn't it? But the lyrics are odd when you stop and think about what we're singing together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton calls himself a wretch, and we happily sing along. But it's actually an understatement. John Newton was a slave trader. Newton made his living transporting cargoes of kidnapped human beings in horrific conditions of suffering to places where their children and their children's children would be treated all their lives as objects to be bought and sold and brutalized. The novelist Francis Spufford writes, Wretch, John Newton was a horror but at least he came to know it. At least he made the journey from comfortable acquiescence in horror to an accurate and therefore horrified sense of himself. Newton moved out of darkness and into the light. He moved out of being comfortable in conditions that are horrifying to having a sense, a horrified sense of himself. And you see, once Newton began to live truthfully with himself before God, then he wrote Amazing Grace. And then God profoundly changed his ways as he lived in the light. Newton became a critical figure in the abolition of slavery. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Have you ever had that horrified sense of yourself? That horrified sense of things you've done, things you've said, things you should have done but failed to do. John writes in his letter, I say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we haven't seen our sin as wretched or somewhat horrifying, it's because our default is set to self-deception. That's what John is saying here. We deceive ourselves. You see, we're not always people who tell the truth. And we have to come to terms with that somehow. So often we, we um, soften how we fall short of truthfulness. We don't lie. What do we do? We tell white lies. We don't distort the truth. We just tell half-truths. But this shows that we can't live with the truth, that we're not truthful. In other words, we lie about our lying and we're dishonest about our dishonesty. Psychologists have well documented the phenomenon of self-verification. Say that with me, self-verification, fun word. We prefer, what they mean is we prefer to surround ourselves with people who confirm our own perception of ourself. They confirm how we already see ourselves and the world. And we're prone to reinterpret events that highlight our best qualities and diminish our worst qualities. For example, the psychologist Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson, describe our memory 
as an unreliable, self-serving historian. Is that how you describe your memory? An unreliable, self-serving historian. This is what they write. Memories are often pruned and shaped by ego-enhancing bias that blurs the edges of past events, softens culpability, and distorts what really happened. It sounds like they've been reading scripture, but these are both secular psychologists observing human behavior. If our memories are disposed towards self-deception, and if sin is happy to hide out in our self-deception, what are we to do? What are we to do if our default is to deceive ourselves and to say we're not really that bad? We confess. If you're here today and you're visiting for the first time, you're just exploring faith, you saw us collectively sit or kneel and confess our sins together. And you might be curious about what that was all about, or you might have found it just straight up weird. And we get that. And here's why we do it. We do it because we know how prone we are to deceive ourselves. We need that reminder, that collective reminder, that together we rightfully find our place on our knees, that we have sinned, that we fall short. But that is not just one of us. All of us share that together, that we are not alone in our brokenness, but that we are all mutually broken. And so we confess our sins. We do so on our knees because it helps bring sin out of self-deception. It makes us come into the light, even if we're unaware of how we've sinned, to say there's probably something in my life. And so we confess, I've sinned in thought. I've sinned in word. I've sinned in deed in the things I've done. I've sinned actively, and I've also sinned passively by failing to do what I should do. And I've also sinned probably in ways I'm completely unaware. Week after week, we come together, we kneel, and we confess this in a general sense. Right? We're not naming any one individual sin. We're trusting that the Spirit can illuminate that in each of our lives. But we do this week after week so that we can begin to live honestly with ourselves Monday through Saturday so that you know you can come before the God who is truth, who sees everything about your life and name what he already sees. But we also confess to be reminded, as we say every week, it's Jesus Christ who lifts you up out of your sin. It's Jesus Christ who assures you that your sins are put away as far as the East is from the West. You see, we're not confessing sin to earn God's forgiveness. God has already forgiven your sins through the power of Christ's death on the cross. We are confessing sin to experience the joy of that relationship. When Julia and I went through premarital counseling, they used an analogy of every time you don't actually address a conflict, you put a brick down. And over time, if you fail to address a conflict over and over again, you create a wall. And over time, you're going to have to jump and yell around that wall to try to communicate, but it becomes impossible in the same way with our relationship with God. Confession is for us. It's a gift. So that we remove these barriers that might make us think, oh, God is angry with me because I've done that. God says, no, I'm not. Because I've forgiven you. And I've restored you. And I'm with you. Oh, God couldn't possibly hear my prayers because I've sinned. No, you confess, not so that God hears your prayers, but so that you're reminded he wants to talk to you. He wants to be relationship with you, not when you're performing and excelling and have your best face on, but in the mess that you are. Confession is for us. John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
which means the opposite is also true. If we say we have sin, we do not deceive ourselves, and the truth is in us. Testimony is the practice of living in the truth. And if we want to live in the truth, it starts by acknowledging our sin before God. And perhaps you begin today by acknowledging that you're not always truthful. Maybe that's where you start. Or maybe you acknowledge that how untruthful we can be runs so deeply in us that we're not even fully aware of how untruthful we can be. And here's the thing. If we're going to speak truthfully at all, we need God's help. The spirit of truth needs to be at work in us who illuminates these things, who shows us these things, not to shame us, not to guilt us, not to condemn us, but to invite us into the light so that we can experience the joy and the grace of forgiveness. I want to be really clear about this. Christians don't talk about sin as frequently as we do because we have a mortified obsession with guilt or feeling shame or feeling like we've always done wrong. We don't think that God is a cruel taskmaster keeping a detailed record of our life just to crush us with it. Reflecting on this, St. Augustine wrote the phrase in Latin, Felix culpa. It's most often translated as happy fault. St. Augustine calls sins happy faults or a fortunate fall. Augustine doesn't mean that it's fortunate that we disobey God or that sin itself is an occasion for happiness. But what's fortunate or what's happy about sinning before the God of the universe is that even when we fall, God offers us grace. So every occasion, every fault, every shortcoming in our lives can be a happy occasion when we turn to God and hear and proclaim the words of forgiveness, the words of grace. Fortunate fall. And this is what John's getting at when he talks about sin. Because if we look at the whole passage, John writes this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we rehearse this good news week after week, as we kneel to acknowledge our sins, as we stand to be assured that they're forgiven, we do this and Jesus also meets us. This is not just a memory, but a present reality of the Spirit of God working in our midst that Jesus hears our confession that he does absolve us and forgive us and he lifts us out so we can live new lives. And it's possible that this is free of charge. That you don't have to beg for forgiveness. You don't have to earn forgiveness. You don't have to warrant forgiveness. You don't have to even wait long enough and beat yourself up so that finally you can say your sins before God. No, the moment you come before God, he is already waiting for you. Jesus Christ is just to forgive our sins because he died on the cross for all of our sins to reconcile us to God. God is eager to forgive our sins. But sometimes this good news is hard to wrap our heads around. And so sometimes we need others to show us grace in order for us to truly relish in the truth of God's grace towards us. We need others to model the grace of God towards us so that grace can sink into our bones, so that it can get into the fiber of our being. 
Again, when Julia and I were going through premarital counseling, we were encouraged to share our past relationships with each other, which was great for Julia because she had dated one guy, a little more awkward for me. And I was pretty nervous about doing this. In fact, I went to other people and like, is this actually good advice? And I was nervous because my past is full of blemishes and mistakes. And so I figured best case scenario, when I lay it all out on the table, Julia bears with me. She will bear with this. She'll choose to keep walking with me because she loves me, but she'll just bear with this past reality of mine. And so one night we get together and I told her all about my past relationships, my past indiscretions and failures with probably more detail than needed now that I look back on it. And the ways in which I'd betrayed people and fallen short of God's standards for purity and the way we conduct ourselves and live in our bodies. And when I was finished, in silence, Julia stood up and walked out of the room. And I sat there thinking, I have no idea what's happening right now. And very quickly, she returned with a basin of water, took off my my socks and proceeded to wash my feet. See, Julia showed me grace. She repeated what Jesus did for his own disciples. She washed my feet, but how could she do that? Julia could do that because she knows the grace of Jesus herself. Julia could do that even if she was struggling internally because she knows deep down in her soul that God is a God of forgiveness and that if Christ would wash my feet, so will she. Now, in telling that story, I want to say, if you're in a difficult relationship and you're not ready to do that, I don't want this to become suddenly a paradigm where it's like, oh, that's how the pastor and his wife have been engaged. No. I share this story just to say we do have a part in many different ways to make grace more tangible in one another's lives. And so if you are struggling in a relationship, come and talk with us and we'll figure out how we can support you and who we can connect you with. But the practice of testimony is the process of becoming honest with ourselves before God. But it's also the process of becoming honest about ourselves with others. It's the process of becoming honest about ourselves before God and the process of becoming honest about ourselves with others. But that gets scary, doesn't it? Like the thought of opening ourselves up to others, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the vile parts of ourselves, that alone might be making your stomach turn a bit right now. That might even be scarier than confessing your sins before God. Because it's one thing to have a private conversation with the God of the universe who already knows everything about you. But it's an entirely different thing to say that out loud before others who can hear and evaluate what you've said and possibly hurt you in the process. But we do this. We start becoming honest about ourselves before others because grace starts to become more tangible in our lives becoming honest before ourselves, before others, makes grace more tangible. If you're in a St. Peter's community group, you know that once a month, we mark off a night for inwards night. And it's an opportunity for people to take off their masks, to share what's really going on in their lives before others and before God. And on these evenings, our groups break into smaller groups of people to share, to listen, and to pray. That's it. And sometimes people share very little. They're very silent. They sit and they listen. And I want you to know if that's you, that is perfectly okay. 
Sometimes you need to be in that room for a while and you need to hear other people opening up and you need to see that this is actually a safe place and that you can build trust before you speak. That's perfectly okay. Trust should be established, but over time, as you see others opening up, you'll start to find the courage to open up yourself. Over the years, I've seen unimaginable things happen on this night. Things that, when we planted this church, I could have never anticipated. You know, people have opened up about traumatic events in their past that they had never told anybody. Or about fears that are strangling them in the present, and suddenly they have people to share that burden with. People have shared about difficulties in marriages, broken relationships, or struggles and fears about finances in the futures. But what we found on this evening and this practice, this discipline, is that vulnerability begets vulnerability. That the extent to which one person opens up invites another to open up. And as we share our own failures, as we share our hurts, as we share those places of shame in our lives, we come to see that we are all in the same boat. We all need grace. We all need compassion. We all need healing. We all need forgiveness. And so while it's often messy, I can't promise that inwards is going to be easy. Together, we start to experience the grace of Jesus in our midst because that's where he meets us. And we have this inward rhythm once a month in the hopes that this cycle of having to do this once a month will help you start to develop one or two very close relationships where you can actually do this as needed or on a regular basis. We do this in the hope that you can develop enough trust with a handful of individuals that you can begin to speak the truth into one another's lives. Because we need this. We need other people to speak the truth into our lives because we don't always see clearly. Because we are prone to self-deception. And sometimes people see things in us that we don't see in ourselves. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, by speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And... Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So Paul's saying within the household of faith, within these relationships with other followers of Jesus, we're to speak the truth in love to one another. I got an email once that said, how honest, brutally honest are you with yourself? How honest do you really really want me to be with you in any instance. And as a new Christian, I was excited when a new friend emailed me these questions. I had finally found the elusive accountability partner that everyone was saying I should go and get. And I told him, hey, I think I'm pretty honest with myself, and I would like you to be pretty honest with me too. And I came to regret that decision. (laughs) A few weeks later, I received another email. This time it wasn't just a couple sentences, but it was a multi-page email highlighting every single flaw he had seen in my life in the three weeks he had known me, all of my shortcomings and failures, concluding that I was too far gone to be worth his time because he could be of no help or assistance to me. I will not say his name because I'm speaking the truth in love, but he was truthful. In fact, when I read that email, I could say, you know what, you actually nailed a few things. But he didn't show me any grace or compassion or sympathy or understanding or willingness to do a back and forth for me to say, hey, you were right, but in all the wrong ways. So you hurt me. 
Can we talk about that? And then let's talk about this, this other stuff. But he wasn't even willing to, to be in that process. We can't promise we're not going to hurt one another. It's when we hurt one another, will we speak the truth about that and walk forward together, figuring out how to speak the truth in love and to show one another grace? He wasn't willing to participate. So what he did, that's not what we're speaking about when we say let's speak the truth to one another in love. If you see something in someone's life, if you feel like, hey, there's a blind spot here and I want to speak the truth to them, here's a question you should first ask yourself. Pay attention. Am I trying to make a point or am I trying to make a difference? Am I trying to make a point or am I trying to make a difference? Is the goal in speaking the truth just to get something off your chest? Or is the goal in speaking the truth the hope that they might grow in maturity in Christ and that you want to walk alongside them and help them overcome this area that is a challenge? Do you have compassion and empathy and grace and a desire to walk with that person? If not, you should probably just keep your mouth shut. Because speaking the truth is not the same as speaking your mind. Some of you need to hear that. Speaking the truth is not the same as just speaking your mind. Some people are very good about speaking their minds. And sometimes what you have to say needs to be heard, but is it seasoned with love and grace and compassion? But speaking the truth in love doesn't mean we just challenge people. That sometimes is part of it. More often than not, speaking the truth in love is speaking truth into people's lives that they're struggling to hold on as truth. They need to be reminded that they're loved, that they have friends around them who will walk with them. They need to be reminded that if they're struggling with shame, that you're there. You see, speaking the truth in love is for the building up of, of a person into the image of Christ. And so you speak that truth. I am here with you and I'm going to walk with you towards Jesus and come hell or high water, I will do my best to love you. That is speaking the truth in love. The practice of testimony is the process of becoming honest about ourselves before God and before others. But as we practice being honest in this community, it's also for the sake of our city. It's for the sake of every person in your life. The goal is that we would live honestly before all people. And living honestly sometimes means that we show compassion and exercise restraint. That sometimes the best way to live honestly is to honestly love that person in all their challenges. Sometimes the way we live honestly is when a coworker hurts you, you, you pull them aside privately and say, this hurt me. I forgive you, but I just wanted you to, you to know this, this hurt. So sometimes living truthfully before others, it's our actions. It's how we demonstrate that we're following Jesus, that truth matters to us by living truthfully and honestly with people. Other times... Living honestly before others means we open up about why we're living honestly. We open up that there's this story of Jesus and his love for me that is transforming the way I live. But when we do this, when we testify or share who Jesus is without others, I want to be clear about this. We want to avoid doing it out of obligation or guilt or because even your pastor told you this is a thing Christians ought to do. As St. John writes at the beginning of his letter, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Do you see what he's saying? If we're going to share our faith with others, the goal is always relationship or what St. John calls fellowship. The goal of sharing our faith is not to shut down a conversation, but to deepen a relationship, to extend an offer of community. But hear me out. I know it's difficult to discern when to open up about our faith because we all have relationships that matter to us. And we don't want to damage a relationship by sharing our faith because even if we do it well, it might be perceived as pushy or it might not be received well at all. And then the relationship is hurt and, and that is too great of a cost. And so I don't want to say, hey, just in every relationship, wherever you are, just share your faith because that is what ultimately matters. No, what matters is you living truthfully before God and before others and discerning what is God doing here? Because right now God might be telling you not to speak, to actually hold back and show restraint. It might be because you're at work and you have a code of ethics you have to live by, or it might just because it is the totally wrong moment and what that person needs to see is the truth that God loves them and you're going to demonstrate that just by loving them. But there will be times where we have an opportunity to share faith, where someone says, why do you go to church every Sunday? Why is this Jesus thing so important to you? And if we don't speak up then, then I think we have to ask a difficult question. If we're not being truthful about our love for Jesus, are we being authentic? Because if Jesus gives us awe, if Jesus is in fact the most defining part of our lives, how could you ultimately hold that back in a sincere friendship? Even if that person doesn't share your worldview, how could you hold that back if you're truly friends? Again, I'm not saying that you're pushy or that you try to convince them, but if they ask, you should share. And even if they don't ask, there will be times where the Spirit prompts you and you're like, you know what, I want to just tell you a bit about my story. So let's say we have these opportunities to live truthfully before others who don't share the same convictions as us. How do we actually do it? Because it's one thing to say, hey, we should try to do this when it happens. But if you have that opportunity, what do you do? I used to run an event called Beer and Theology at a bar down the street called The Sin Bin. And I loved these nights. And we'd get together with skeptics and atheists and de-churched people and occasionally people who believed aliens were in our midst. And we would talk about God and our doubts, about faith, about science, about other religions. I mean, whatever. We would just talk. And one evening, uh, a young man named Bo was there, and he was asking me solid questions, like really good questions. And I gave my best textbook answers for, for him. You know, I laid out the arguments for God's existence, the moral argument, the aesthetic argument, the ontological argument. You know, I gave him four years of sem seminary in, in 10 minutes. And it wasn't getting him any closer to Jesus. And then a woman who was pretty quiet the whole time, pretty shy, she piped up and she said rather meekly, Bo, can I just tell you how I started following Jesus? And Bo said, please. And she said, well, I was an atheist. And my conversion didn't happen overnight, but I couldn't shake this desire to know Jesus. And slowly I had more and more of a sense that God wanted to be involved in my life. I can't fully explain it. There's been no bright lights, no arguments that could assuage all my doubts, just a slow progression towards a sense that Jesus is who he said he is, and that he wants to be involved in my life and that his mercy is even for me. What she said was literally about that long. 
That's all she said. That's all she had. And after she shared, Bo asked the whole table, what do you find more convincing? Alistair's logical arguments or her story? And then Bo looked at me and said, no offense, Alistair, but I find her story way more convincing. And I did too. You see, sometimes we don't share our faith because we don't think we're adequately prepared. We can't anticipate maybe some thorny questions people would ask and we don't feel like we would have the answers. But more often than not, people don't need your argument. They need your story. If someone asks you a question and you don't have the answer, do you know what the best response is? This is an easy one. It doesn't even need to be multiple choice. I don't know. And do you know how freeing that is for everybody in the conversation? To admit, hey, I don't have all the answers. Maybe you follow it up by saying, that is a really good question and I'd be happy to try to find an answer. But I don't know. What people really need is your story. How did you come to start following Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? You see, you don't need to have every answer because you have your story. And some of you right now, you're thinking, well, my story isn't all that interesting. It's actually pretty boring. No such thing. There is no such thing as a boring encounter with Jesus. Some of us, we, we describe these dramatic moments, right? St. Paul, conversion on Damascus, fall off the horse, light. I've described moments like that in my life. But those are by no means normative. If you haven't had that moment, but within your heart, you have a strong conviction that Jesus truly is Lord and that your whole life, you've slowly grown into that conviction and followed Jesus, that is just as beautiful and just as important. There's no such thing as a boring story because Jesus is meeting every single individual. How he has met you in your life matters. And when you share that, that will speak to people because the people God has placed in your life, he's placed there and they like you. They connect with you. So of course they're going to connect more readily with the ways in which Jesus met a person like you, a person in which they could associate. And so if you don't know how to share your story, here's a little homework assignment with you. Start with awe. What gives you awe about Jesus? When you're still and you think, why am I doing this? Why am I following this Jesus of Nazareth? What gives you awe? For me, it's the simple truth that Jesus is alive. That's how I keep finding my feet moving in the direction of Jesus, and that's enough to share. You see, you don't have to give your whole life story. Just give a glimpse. This is what gives me awe. I go to church on Sundays because I'm reminded that this Jesus is alive. And I know that sounds crazy, but if you ever want to come and experience that for yourself, you're welcome to come. That's it. It doesn't have to be more than that. It can be if people ask, but start with awe. But finally, if you do have an opportunity to share your faith, or to talk about who Jesus is, the words that often accompany sharing faith in Scripture, speaking the truth to others about who Jesus is, are gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. So as we seek to be honest about our lives before others, as we seek to be honest about this core in our life that defines who we are and helps us find our existence in the world, share that with gentleness and respect. In other words, read the room. Read the room. Pay attention to the person you're having a conversation with. And if you feel like you've offended them, you know what? Ask. Hey, did I offend you? Should we change the topic? Keep pressing into the relationship. 
but share the truth in love with gentleness and respect. So stepping back, this practice of testimony, living in the truth, speaking the truth, it involves a lot of supporting practices. If we summarize everything I've said, it involves confessing our sins before God. It involves living authentically and vulnerably before others, speaking the truth in love to one another and sharing our story of following Jesus with the world around us. Anyone feeling tired already? Anyone feeling like this is a tall order? How am I supposed to practice this? How do I live up to this? How do I practice testimony? In John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, we don't start to live truthfully by trying to live truthfully. We come to Jesus, who's the truth, who abides in us. The truth will abide in us, and he will guide and lead you and empower you to live truthfully before God and before others. And that truth sets you free. That truth sets you free from guilt. It sets you free from shame. It sets you free from a religion that's about rules or obligations. Because here's the truth. Even if you fail at this, Jesus is still with you. Jesus is still with you. And that truth never changes. In John's letter, he says, everyone who listens to my voice knows the truth. So start there if you're struggling and wondering, how, how, can, I, how can I do this? Listen to Christ's voice. There's the truth. Well, how can I trust that? I'd love to have that conversation with you. But for now, let's pray.